This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our cards this week are Richard Dotson, card number 209, and card number 35T. So we have a traded card for Richard Dotson as well as his base card. One is Richard Dotson on the White Sox, the other Richard Dotson on the Yankees. Fantastic. Richard Dotson, a pitcher. And we haven't had one from the traded set in a little while, so looking forward to this one. But first things first, David, we have big stories in the business of baseball cards to talk about. You have an update having to do with some MLB NFTs. A couple weeks back, I teased that I had made an ill-fated or ill-advised financial decision, and I bought a pack of MLB Prospect, they're called Uncut Gems, on the new MLB NFT site Candy. And so they allowed you to buy a pack of cards. Each pack had three cards and cost $50. God. That's a bad idea. Just sounds like a ripoff immediately. Matt, the opportunities to leave my house are few and far between. So <laughs> had some some money just burning a hole in my pocket. You know, it was, let's call it a, a podcast investment. Mm, yes, very good. Send that straight to the 1988 Tops accountant. This write-off now has turned lucrative because mm. the site to sell these NFTs, to resell them or, or buy from other owners, was not up yet. So you could only buy packs or you could buy these special editions. The packs were, I think, limited to maybe 8,000 packs. And the cards were either core, so common cards, uncommon, rare, or epic. And those each had specific set numbers. I got two core cards, Tristan Casas and Jason Dominguez, the prospect for the Yankees, and one uncommon, Xavier Edwards. So because I couldn't sell these right away, otherwise I would have just said, like, what can I get back for these stupid things? It made me just sit on these until the site went up, and today the site went live. Last week when they announced sites going live January 15th, it allowed you to pre-list your cards. And I said, I know people think Jason Dominguez is next big thing for the Yankees. I'm going to list this thing for $50 and see if I can make my money back. The site went live today, and it immediately I got an email that it sold for 50 bucks. So on the bright side, I've made my money back. On the downside here, I looked at the site, which is kind of a mess and difficult to navigate, but I do see other common Jason Dominguez cards selling for $185. Oh. Other people have offered them for over $1,000. So people <laughs> have no idea what these things are valued at. I th- I saw a Chris Bryant card that I think was was offered for twenty million dollars. Mm, mm-hmm. It was I think it was rare, but the it seems like the highest sales thus far have been maybe five thousand dollars for a couple, down to for most of the rares or epics in the two thousand dollar range. So I got a couple more of these to sell. I still think this is a scam, <laughs> but at least I got my money back. Well, that is a good bright side. Now you're playing with house money. Exactly. After getting In five yeah. years, though, that Jason Dominguez is probably going to be worth more than my home. 
you know, people will ask me when I tell them about the show, they'll say, oh, do you still collect and trade cards now? And I realize that I'm really bad at trading pretty much everything. Stocks, if it came to crypto, it came to cards. I was never good at trading. I was, and really not that good at collecting either. I get very impatient with, you know, lots of stuff. And so uh, this sounds like it's absolutely guaranteed to make me lose all my money. So I don't want any part of it, but I'm glad that someone out there is uh, going to make something off of it. So hopefully, hopefully your other two cards, you can, you can flip for a tidy profit. Matt, do you want to buy any of these beanie babies that I have sitting around? <laughs> no, no. They're fuzzy gold. My heart says yes, but my head says no. <laughs> so someone else who did some major flipping and a hugely lucrative transaction is the company Fanatics. And that goes to our other news story this week. And that is the company that is buying the Tops Corporation for $500 million. Fanatics was the company that landed the licensing deal for Major League Baseball last year stealing it out of the hands of the Topps company. And as soon as that happened, Topps was pretty much dead. I think that the timing of this deal was such that the the Topps and their SPAC was about to go public and they were going to be valued at a billion dollars. And now, what, six months later, being purchased for $500 million is quite the rug pullout. Losing that licensing was huge for the Tops company. It, it it will be nice to see the Fanatics company will be able to use those Tops images so that we can get the reprint of this Richard Dotson card on the 50th anniversary of the 1983 White Sox AL West championship team. Mm. Yeah, we'll we'll look forward to that special commemorative NFT line to come out in 2023 the licensing for tops was going to run out at some point i think in the next 10 years so again i was excited that tops was doing the heritage sets and that in 16 years they might get around to the 1988 tops theme and then again the eternal nature of our podcast can be solidified now we will just have to hold out hope for a six inch cube of tungsten with Jay Baller's image imprinted on all six sides of the cube. A six inch by six inch cube of tungsten weighs 132 pounds. It's extremely heavy and you can weigh it around your neck in a nest of gold chains like Jay Baller would wear in the 1988 Topps card. We'll look forward to that. But now let's go to today's card, which is not nearly as flashy. Why did we choose Richard Dotson today? Recently, we've had a good run of single card episodes, but we know that we have 792 plus 132 traded cards in this set, so we had to do some double card episodes to knock some of these out. And this past week, January 10th, was Richard Dotson's birthday. So happy birthday, Richard Dotson. He turned 63 years old. He was a star for the winning ugly White Sox, so of course he holds a special place in my heart. And there is a bit of mystery in Richard's story that we will get to later. He also has no Sabre bio, so thanks for nothing, Sabre. (laughs) That means more work for you to do, David, but we don't mind it. 
I'm looking forward to this mystery, and I don't know it. It has not been spoiled for me, so I will look forward to hearing that as we continue in the show. As I pull up this card on the Jumbotron, card 209, the mystery to me, David, is how Richard Dotson was able to fit that much chewing tobacco in his lower lip. It looks as if he's got an entire pouch in his lower lip. He is in mid-delivery. He's just about to release the ball. This is a a photo that's taken from home plate almost. And I really like this shot. It really gives you the view from the batter's perspective of this tall guy throwing right at you. And he's pretty big. He looks big in this picture. He looks kind of imposing, which I, you know, from this other card, he doesn't doesn't look like a super imposing guy. Good arm motion. He's also wearing what looks like some White Sox pajamas. <laughs> it's a very baggy shirt. Very baggy, navy kind of shirt with the white script on the top. Again, maybe it's just the, that big lip that looks so intimidating. His face is extremely strained trying to keep all of that chewing tobacco in his face and not have it spill out while he's pitching. But a good look overall. Let's flip to the back of 209. Richard Dotson, six feet tall, 203, right-handed batter and thrower, although I don't know if he ever batted in the major leagues. I doubt he did. Drafted by the Angels in the first round of June 1977. Born January 10th, as mentioned, 1959 in Cincinnati, Ohio, with a home in Sarasota, Florida. Matt, I recently learned from the History of Rome podcast about the name Cincinnati and where that comes from. We referenced that History of Rome podcast in the Tom Needenfear episode because Mike Duncan, who presents the podcast, went to the same high school as Tom. And a listener suggested that this podcast was probably right up our alley. And over the last couple months while I was on parental leave, I had some late night time to listen to podcasts. And I listen to a lot of this History of Rome podcast. It's really good. I think listeners to our podcast would would enjoy it. So let's get to Cincinnatus. Cincinnatus was the namesake of the city of Cincinnati. He was a statesman who was twice granted the dictatorship of Rome. And in Rome, the dictatorship doesn't have the negative connotation that dictatorship has now. At the time, it was voted by the Senate to grant full dictatorial powers to a single person to deal with an emergency. So situations like an uprising or an invasion, they would just put all of the power of the state in the hands of one guy. Both times that Cincinnatus was granted this authority, after defeating the uprisings, defeating the invasions, he just went back to his family farm and quietly resigned. He never took full dictatorial powers, never wanted to be in charge So in his honor, after the American Revolution, the Society of Cincinnati was created by Henry Knox with uh, a motto in Latin, and I'm going to defer to your Latin abilities. Omnia reliquit servare rem publicum. He relinquished everything to save the republic. And the society aimed to preserve the victory of the revolution and to care for officers as well as their widows and children, officers in the revolutionary army. So in honor of that and this Society of Cincinnati, the city of Cincinnati, was named after Cincinnatus. At the time of Richard's birth in 1959, Cincinnati was at the height of its population. 
Over 500,000 people lived there in the 1960s. Now the city has declined to closer to 300,000, while the metro area has probably grown with the suburbanization of, of southern Ohio. Uh, Richard attended Anderson High School. Other famous alums include Olympic gold medalist swimmer Dave Wilson and former Reds broadcaster Tom. I pride myself and think of myself as a man of faith, and there's a drive into deep left field by Castellanos Brenneman. <laughs> I'll leave that there. Just leaving that. Yes, do. Leave it in there. While Richard was at Anderson, he excelled on the basketball court and baseball field. Both as a pitcher and as a right-handed batter, Matt, you suggested that earlier, he was legendary, and there are stories still told in the city of Cincinnati about his monster home run hitting ability. Supposedly, he hit one that passed over a fence, over this huge stretch of grass, and broke a window on an old middle school that had closed down. And I looked at a map, and I think uh, this must have been like a 600-foot home run, so... (laughs) <laughs> this might be some tall tale Ron Kittle territory. And the local paper describes it as something only a Herculean effort could accomplish. Ron Kittleian. Yes, Kittlesque. <laughs> the Kittle Kittlesque effort. A- along with his all city honors in baseball, he was a two time all league player in basketball. Their rival was Archbishop McNicholas High School, and 1988 Tops future subject Pat Tabler played on the McNicholas team. The Angels picked Richard in the first round of the 1977 draft. Other first-round draft picks who are included in the 88 top set include Harold Baines, who was the number one overall pick by the White Sox, Bill Gullickson from Joliet, Illinois, and he had a solid 14-year career. Third pick in the draft was Paul Molitor, and sixth was Terry Kennedy. And Richard was seventh, so pretty highly regarded prospect. Yeah, and he spent only a short time in the minors. So his first line on this card is 1979. First with Idaho Falls, where he didn't do so great. He's got a whip up near two and went four and five with a 5.73 ERA. But he's only 18 years old, and he was a top prospect for the Angels. And that takes us to the This Way to the Clubhouse on the card, which is that Richard was traded by the Angels to the White Sox with Bobby Bonds and Thad Bosley in exchange for Brian Downing, Chris Knapp, and Dave Frost, December 5th, 1977. And we talked about this trade on the Thad Bosley episode. Bosley and Dotson were both young players in the Angels organization, and they were tossed in with the big bat of Bobby Bonds. Brian Downing, Dave Frost, and to a lesser extent Chris Knapp were instrumental for the 1979 AL West champ Angels. Bobby Bonds was coming off a 37 home run, 41 steal season in 1977. But after only 26 games, he's traded away by the White Sox. The experiment didn't work. He's traded for Claudel Washington. Bosley played three seasons for the Sox and bounced between AAA and MLB and probably played some good R&B jams. (laughs) At the time of the trade, it was reported that Dick Dotson was traded. I haven't seen him referred to as Dick Dotson anywhere else, normally referred to as Rich or Richard. He was sent immediately to Double A, which is surprising considering that he had a kind of a rough go at, at rookie ball. And he spends 1978 and 79 at Knoxville with the Knoxville Sox, which is fun to say. <laughs> the first year, he is 19 and strikes out 152 in 145 innings. 
He also unfortunately walked 105 guys, so he had a 1.6 whip and a 4.28 ERA. Good enough to stay in double A. His walks dropped the next season, and his ERA dropped as well to 3.70. He's still striking out a decent number. At this point, he's a fastball, curveball, changeup pitcher. He had good speed on his fastball as a young pitcher, and he wasn't afraid to throw inside. He ends up pitching well enough to earn a September call-up in 1979. This was Tony LaRusse's first season <laughs> with the White Sox. <laughs> Many, many, many years ago. <laughs> so LaRusa had managed Dotson at double A in nineteen seventy-eight before LaRusa was promoted to triple A and then was brought up to the big leagues after Don Kessinger was fired. The team was forty-six and sixty, and Tony LaRusa was only thirty-four years old, and he he went twenty-seven and twenty-seven to close the season and brought up Richard Dotson in September of that year. Dotson got his first start on September 4th against the team that had drafted him. Unfortunately, he only lasted one inning and was pulled after giving up five runs. His second game was much better. He pitched a six-hit shutout against the A's for his first win. This was important also to Richard because his family was now living in Northern California, and they were able to go to the game at the Coliseum to see him pitch. The next game, he got a second win with six innings and no earned runs. So 2-0 with a 3.75 ERA and five starts is pretty good for a 20-year-old Richard Dotson. In 1980, he starts the season with the White Sox. He went 12-10, and 10, eight complete games. His ERA was 4.27 and not a big strikeout pitcher, 109 strikeouts in 198 innings. But he held batters to only 224 average at Comiskey Park. So during those home games, but he was struggling for consistency. The, the games that he would win, he had a 1.79 ERA. And the games that he lost, he had a 7.44 ERA. So wrapping up that season, he got some Rookie of the Year votes. He finished 7th in Rookie of the Year. The White Sox were 20 games under 500, But they were putting together a pitching staff that would end up winning them the AL West in 1983. They've got a good young roster. Yeah, at this point, they had Dotson and Britt Burns, who were both 21 years old, and Lamar Hoyt was in his first full season with the big league club. 1981 is always when we get there. The stats look weird because of the strike. Dotson led the American League with four shutouts. Four of his nine wins were shutouts, which is impressive. One of those, it's a different game these days, instances, sometimes maybe for the better. On April 23rd, he pitched a complete game he gave up five runs, and this was an 18-5 to win. It's just absurd that they left him in for the full nine innings in an 18-5 to blowout. Later in his career, when we see that he has some arm trouble, we'll think maybe some of those complete games might not have been necessary. In the next game after that, he, he got a win again, giving up five, and then he had two shutouts in a row. So he's pitching a lot of innings, and we see that throughout his time with the White Sox putting up a lot of innings and and he's still only 22 years old finishing up that season he was nine and eight with a 3.77 ERA and by this point the White Sox now had Carlton Fisk and Harold Baines as well as the bull Greg Luzinski so the record ends up over 500 for that shortened season things are chugging along you just know it's going to get better Going into 1982, the team is almost there. They win 87 games. Things are really improving. Dotson was okay. 
he had a, an 11 and 15 record, but opponents hit 282 against him. And that was kind of a theme of his career. Even at his best, he never had an elite whip. He was 1.485 in 1982. His ERA was slightly better than average at 3.84. And he was 11 and 11 in early September and then lost his last four decisions. So three of those losses were low scoring games that the Sox lost by only one run and could have easily swung the other direction. In early September, the White Sox were three and a half games behind the Royals, and then the Angels went on a good run and won the AL West. The White Sox played 500 ball to close out the season. They didn't really make a run, and they finished in third place. But that leads up to 1983, to the the glorious season. The core of the pitching staff has now been together for a while with... Dotson, Burns, Hoyt, and they brought in Floyd Bannister as well, who had been an all-star for the Mariners the prior season. And on offense, you've got Carlton Fisk, Baines, Lisinski. They're still hitting for power. And they had that rookie first baseman who likes woodworking, nachos, and big stories in Ron Kittle. This is a very strong team, even if they didn't start out so great. By May 18th, they were 13-20, and 20, six games out of first place. And as a side note, on that same day, May 18th, Dotson threw a one-hitter against Baltimore and lost. The one hit that he gave up was a home run, and the White Sox lost one nothing. Later in the season, he pitched another complete game against the Orioles, giving up only three hits and losing 2-1. to one. He had some good performances against the Orioles, who they would play in the playoffs, but had some rough luck. The White Sox didn't hit 500 until June 22nd, and the rest of the AL West was mediocre. So by July, they're in first place, only four games over 500, but they never relinquished that spot. They finished with 99 wins and went 50-16 and 16 in their last 66 games. So even after they were well ahead, they were just destroying everybody. Doug Rader said of the White Sox, they're not playing that well, they're winning ugly. The team took that, moniker and owned it those block letter White Sox uniforms are the winning ugly uniforms Larusa said that the team's goal was to get so far ahead that the manager couldn't screw it up <laughs> which is still a goal for the White Sox to this day <laughs> that is always a good goal and Dotson as we see he ends up having his best season in wins and losses, 22 and 7 record. His last 11 starts, he went 10 and 1 with a 1.75 ERA and five complete games. That's really quite a stretch. Opponents hit only 202 in those last 11 starts against him. Prior to that, his ERA was over four. So it really made a difference coming down the stretch. So it was also his best ERA, 3.23, although he did lead the league in walks with 106. Dotson didn't make the all-star team. So you have a guy who wins 22 games, but at the all-star break was maybe not looking very impressive along with the rest of the team. And I've seen on friend of the show, Andy from High Heat Stats, his 88 Tops blog, he called this a fluke season. In the expansion era, so since the 1960s, this uh, Dotson season, he had the fourth highest whip for a player with 22 or more wins, the second highest walk percentage, and second highest on-base percentage against for a player with 22 or more wins. But 
he was pretty dominant down the stretch and was important to the White Sox clinching the AL West. The team drew over 2 million fans to Comiskey Park, and they earned themselves an appearance in the postseason for the first time since 1959. They had the best record in baseball and scored the most runs in the major leagues. And now they were going to the ALCS against the Baltimore Orioles. And the White Sox win game one in the ALCS in Baltimore. It was a 2-1 victory behind a Lamar Hoyt complete game. They lost game two. Then in game three, Dotson was on the mound. The first playoff game played in Chicago since 1959. He strikes out the leadoff man and then gives up a double to Jim Dwyer, a single to Cal Ripken, and a home run to Eddie Murray. In the fourth inning of this game, as we discussed in the Ron Kittle episode, Mike Flanagan hits Ron Kittle, which injures him, knocks him out of the game and the series. So now, in the fifth inning, down 4-1, to one, Dotson gets two outs and hits Cal Ripken Jr. On the next batter, he throws inside to Eddie Murray, which led to a bench-clearing incident. And then he ends up kind of losing control and walking Eddie Murray, gives up a double, and now it's 6-1. to one. After the game, La Russa said, I'm here to tell you that Ripken was not hit intentionally. But Dotson said... I kind of got the message. Get the first two guys out of the way and hit the third guy. <laughs> what? This is, this is messaging. You need to have some consistent messaging. <laughs> Dotson was pulled oh. after that inning. It turned out that those first three runs from Murray's homer were really all the Orioles needed. The White Sox could only get one run. Orioles go on and score 11 and win that game and in a blowout. Rich gave up six earned in five innings. The Orioles win the next game and take the series. So a disappointing end to the White Sox first playoff appearance in several decades. Dotson would get some postseason award consideration, though. He was fourth in the Cy Young voting in the American League and second in the American League in wins to his teammate Lamar Hoyt. He was the youngest 20-game winner for the White Sox since 1913. And while this season was kind of a fluky season, and we'll see from Dotson's later career, he never really reaches those heights. He had a better wins above replacement than Lamar Hoyt and should have probably garnered significantly more votes. Hoyt had 24 wins for the team that had the best record in baseball. So he was the ace of the staff, and he gets significantly more awards consideration than young Richard Dotson, who racked up a lot of those wins at the end of the season. And as I think we talked about in the Poet Laureate Dan Quisenberry episode, Quisenberry probably had a legitimate gripe about not winning this as as he was the most valuable pitcher as far as wins above replacement with 5.5, at least among those who got uh, Cy Young votes. So in 1984, Dotson is great in the first half of the season. So if you put the Put that 1983 second half and the 1984 first half, and you've got one of the best pitching seasons of the decade. Through the All-Star break, the White Sox are in first place, and Dotson was outstanding, 11-4 and with a 2.64 ERA, and that earns him his first spot in the All-Star game. He pitches two scoreless innings at Candlestick Park. Unfortunately, Dotson and the White Sox couldn't keep up their good form. The White Sox had been in first place, and they weren't unable to duplicate that 1983 offensive firepower for the full season. They went from the highest scoring team to right around league average. The team would finish 14 games under 500 in fifth place, 
And Dotson's second half was bad. He went 3-11 with a 4.77 ERA to finish 14-15. and 15. I know that wins are a team metric, but his performance was night and day in the first half versus the second half of the season. He went from a 1.049 whip to a 1.6 in the second half. Batters hit 93 points better than that second half of the season. 1985, he only pitches in nine games before going on the disabled list. Tess found a circulatory issue in his shoulder and chest. He had surgery to correct an impingement of the artery and nerve in his right shoulder. They had to cut his pectoral muscle in half to correct this issue. And the rehab was pretty brutal. After that, he lost velocity and it hurt to throw a curveball. So he picked up a cut fastball and leaned on his changeup. But this means he's just a dramatically slower pitcher than before. And if you lose velocity on your fastball and you're dependent on your changeup, how different are those two pitches? And while a Tribune article crowed that he was the only stock starter to not miss a turn in the rotation in 1986, we can see some black ink on the back of his card for losses. He had 17 losses leading the American League. It wasn't all bad. He had a four-hit shutout against the Blue Jays, but 10-17 and 17 with a career-high 5.48 ERA is not great. That's an 80 ERA+. plus. He had a run of five starts in July to August where he gave up 27 earned runs in 14 innings for a 16.57 ERA. And if you take out those that stretch of games, his season ERA is a full point lower. That's why I've advocated for the earned run median uh, statistic that is less affected by really bad innings, but it never really did catch on. If you take out those <laughs> couple bad games, his ERA is a lot better. And if a frog had wings, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> In 1987, he gets healthy again. I uh, made 31 starts. And he was better. He was not back up to that 1983-1984 form, but getting better. And he does have a pretty good highlight from that season. On July 26th of 1987, he takes a perfect game into the eighth inning against the Yankees, but then gave up a single to Mike Pagliarulo, gave up a three-run homer to Dan Pasqua, and two more home runs in the ninth inning, and loses the game 5-2. to two. Is that a hi- is that a highlight? That doesn't seem like a it's, you know it started as a highlight. I th- but it also does go to the I think that folks sometimes lament the today pitchers being pulled in the middle of a no hitter, but it does go to show like maybe somebody in the bullpen they could have teamed up and finished that game and actually won. Instead, they left Dotson in there and he gets rocked. He went eleven and twelve with a four point one seven ERA. His ERA plus was over a hundred again, so. 111. He did have a couple shutouts, so a solid starter for the White Sox in 1987. But unfortunately, as he is now in his 10th season with the White Sox, he's got a high salary, and they decided they needed to cut payroll. That's right. And because of that, we have a trade, and that means we have a traded card. So we go to 1988 Tops traded 35T that has a very very contemplative Richard Dotson in Yankees pinstripes and a giant Yankees hat. That's not a painted cap, but it is a very tall cap. Yeah, it's enormous. I'm just kind of eyeballing the measurements on my own head. 
I mean, it seems like from the bill to the very top of the faceplate of that hat, it's like a good six or seven inches. I mean, it's a huge hat. He looks friendlier in this picture than he does in the White Sox card. He looks like a friendly guy. Well, he has a little bit of a tiny, tiny kind of goatee action going on right below his lip. And he doesn't have, you know, full eight ounces of chaw (laughs) stuck into his bottom lip. So you can actually see his face not contorted by tobacco. It is a good picture. Also, I think we've only done bad Yankees, haven't we? (laughs) (laughs) That's a bad, isn't that a band? (laughs) Yes. Bad Yankees. So our second card, 35T, flipping to the back. There is a this way to the clubhouse, and that is that Richard Dotson was traded by the White Sox to the Yankees with pitcher Scott Nielsen for catcher Mark Salas, pitcher Steve Rosenberg, and outfielder Dan Pasqua, who we just mentioned. November 12th, 1987. Pasqua would be decent for the White Sox for a few years and would give me one of my best childhood memories from the old Comiskey Park, which is a teaser for the Dan Pasqua episode. According to the New York Times, they said Pasqua, who wanted to be traded, goes to Chicago with Mark Salas, a catcher of no defensive note, (laughs) cold, and Steve Rosenberg, a minor league pitcher. Another note from the New York Times, Scott Nielsen was in a previous Yankees-White Sox trade, and then they have two fun facts for Scott Nielsen. He led the Yankees in shutouts with two, and he was once fined $100 by Larry Himes, the Chicago general manager, for not wearing socks under his loafers to the ballpark. (laughs) No socks is a fashion crime. New York Times does a much better job of fun facts than tops. That is correct. So 1988, Dotson, you know, after this change of scenery, he's still subpar. He doesn't really have it anymore. All of the innings and the surgery has really taken its toll on him. He really did enjoy himself playing in New York, though. He said it was awesome. As great as it was to play in Chicago with the White Sox, you go to New York and it's a whole different ball game. I'm proud to say I wore the pinstripes one time. And then he also said, with what I was throwing up there, 12 wins was pretty good. Richard went 12-9 and nine in 1988, but his ERA was 5. 1989 wasn't any better. He had a 5.57 ERA through 11 games, and he was released. But the White Sox knew him, liked him, and re-signed him. He started 17 games. He went 3-7 and seven, with an ERA plus of 99, so average. But they chose to not to re-sign him at the end of the 1989 season. 1990, he signs with the Royals, but he goes 0-4 with an ERA over 8. Writing is on the wall, so this is the last season in the major leagues. He retires at age 31. So closing the book on Richard Dotson, he went 111 and 113 in the major leagues with a 4.23 ERA. He had 11 shutouts and 55 complete games and did make that one all-star appearance in 1984. How about in retirement? Richard spent a decade or so outside of baseball. And then over the last 19 seasons, he's been with the White Sox organization as a pitching coach all throughout the minor league system and continues in that role. In 2021, he was with the Birmingham Barons, the White Sox AA affiliate. So David, now that we've looked a little bit deeper into Richard Dotson, what are we thinking about him? Matt, in 1988, I think I knew the name Richard Dotson because he was on that good White Sox team. And so I had this connection of Richard Dotson was a great White Sox pitcher. That's a name I should know. 
But also, he was no longer on the White Sox, so I don't really have a memory of him playing there. And it's unfortunate because that whole team from 83 was... The pitching staff was dismantled. By this trade in 1987 to the Yankees, all of those big names were gone. The White Sox traded Floyd Bannister to the Royals a couple weeks after they traded Richard. Lamar Hoyt had been traded to the Padres and by this point was banned from baseball for drug use. Britt Burns... The Yankees should have known better. Britt Burns was traded to the Yankees, but a degenerative hip condition ended his major league career before he even threw a pitch for the Yankees. So this great promise of these young pitchers never really came to fruition after that 83 season. And between 1983 and 1993, the White Sox never made the playoffs. So you have these great expectations of this team, and some of those batters did stick around. Carlton Fisk stuck around for forever. Harold Baines was around for a while. Ron Kittle, a couple years. But that 83 team ended up being largely disappointing. And so I guess I was always surprised knowing Richard Dotson was good, but looking back and seeing just how good he was in that 83 season, it's really pretty impressive, especially considering by that point he was probably already dealing with some of that nerve issue, probably losing some velocity. He wasn't a overpowering pitcher, but he had a a really good season, and he ended up having a 12-year productive career. But David, you said there was a mystery, so we've gotten to the end, and you know, there hasn't been any twists. It just seems very normal. Oh yeah, I forgot about the mystery. (laughs) (laughs) Setting him up and knocking him down here. So Richard was in the news in 2020, and there was this really good article by Jason Stark in The Athletic. And this goes back to Richard's childhood. His parents growing up were James Dotson and and Gene Bailiff. And maybe around 2010, Richard's sister gets into genealogy. She takes a genetic test. She has everybody else do these genetic tests, including her mom and her dad. She, for Christmas, gives Richard this, you know, 23andMe or one of those Ancestry.com DNA tests. And Richard wasn't really interested. He throws it in the drawer. A couple years later, on a whim, he takes the test out. Fast forward to 2018, and he gets a phone call from somebody who says that he is likely their first cousin. And this mysterious woman is a woman named Shannon Coase, and her test came back, and the results told her Richard was a closer match than any of the cousins that she knew. So she looks into him, she knows his name, and she sees his background, and she says there's some striking similarities here and asks him if he wants to talk. She asked her mother if there was any chance that her mother's brother had some kids out there that she didn't know about. And it turns out that her brother was a bit of a character and was known for getting around, let's say. (laughs) So after sending that message, Richard says, sure, what, what, what do you have to tell me? She calls him up and says, my uncle was Richard Turk Farrell. He was an MLB pitcher for the Phillies and Colt 45s slash Astros. And if I'm your first cousin, then he's your biological father. And Farrell was a six foot four pitcher. Also, when he was young, a really good basketball player and a very good pitcher. He was a five-time All-Star. He was Houston's first All-Star in 1962. And that season, he lost 20 games, but had a 7.0 war which was second among National League pitchers. He also had a reputation as a prankster and maybe as a partier. 
and he was once fined for, quote, conduct unbecoming of a ball player after breaking a mirror at a pool hall in Milwaukee. As it turns out, Richard's parents had a rocky relationship. They were married and divorced from one another twice. During one of those breaks, Farrell's team must have been in Cincinnati, and he must have met Gene. After learning of this genetic information, Richard went and visited the man that he called Dad, James Dotson. And James was 91 and in the last months of his life. Richard showed him a picture of Turk Farrell and said, Do you know who this is? And his dad said, That's you. And Richard said, No, that's not me. But rather than get into it, he just put the picture away. He thought maybe if his dad said, Oh, I know who that guy is that maybe he could get some more information. But it was clear that his dad didn't know about this. Gene had hinted earlier that there might be a, quote, family secret. But she never elaborated, and she passed away in 2015 and took this secret to her grave. In 2018, Richard was visiting his sister and going through some of their mother's belongings, and in a box, they found a Turk Farrell baseball card. And Richard said... Maybe that was something that was a sign, something that his mother was keeping around to someday tell him. But it wasn't clear, and she never left a note. There was, there was no information of whether she knew that that was the, the father. After Farrell's playing career, he was an inspector for an oil company, and he died in a car accident while on a work trip to England in June of 1977, three days after the son that he never knew was drafted by the Angels. Dotson, for his part, was not mad about this secret, and he's proud of this newfound connection and this newfound father. He said maybe if he had learned about it 40 years ago, he wouldn't have been mature enough to deal with it. But as an adult, there's no judgment of his parents or his mother. There's just excitement about putting together this new personal history puzzle. And so Dotson is looked to try to learn everything he can about Farrell, connecting with family. He has two half-sisters that he didn't know about. He has nieces. He plans to travel to Ireland, where Farrell's uh, family came from, to visit with that long-lost family. The odds just are so remarkable here that both of them played professionally as pitchers and were all-star pitchers. The odds that Richard and his sister took these genetic tests, it's amazing and shocking, and so it's really impressive how Richard reacted to this. This wasn't a situation where he was looking for answers to the question of who is my dad. He knew who his dad was. It was James Dotson. Mm -hmm. Instead, this was dropped on him, and he was kind of thrown into it unwittingly. So now fast forward to 2020. Stadiums are empty. The White Sox are using these cardboard cutouts. You could pay 50 bucks and get a cardboard cutout of a loved one in the stands, and the cost of that was donated to White Sox charities. Dotson calls the organization, and he has an idea, and he sends them two pictures. So in 2020, behind home plate, there's father and son who never met watching the White Sox baseball at Guaranteed Rate Field. Uh, I love it. It's a lovely story of Richard finding this family, but also there's an eeriness and a sadness about it that is... It was really a, a cool insight into Richard the person to see how he dealt with this and to see his willingness to tell it and willingness to kind of let people into that is impressive. Yeah, that's a fascinating look. What a thing to deal with as an adult after so many of the people have passed away too. quite a story. So thank you. Thank you, David, for that. And thank you to you at home 
If you've ever been fined for your footwear or lack of footwear, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.